the main advantage to the read style approach is that, like I said, it's very effective. It's easy to learn. Uh, it's relatively cheap in training, and it allows you to bypass all of this tedious investigative work. You know, if you think somebody's a suspect, why go out and do a really good investigation and confront them with it when all you got to do is haul them in and, uh, and, and use this technique and get a confession. With USA Today Network Wisconsin, I'm Shane Nyman. And I'm Doug Schneider. This is Making a Mania, the Stephen Avery saga and why we're obsessed. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A. Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. By now, we've all seen the Netflix series. We know the ins and outs. Maybe you're a hardcore Redditor, or maybe you stopped reading about it when you finished episode 10. Whatever the case, we all know the story. We're not here to rehash that. With the arrival of the second season, what we are here to do is pull back on all this, the series, the case, and the surrounding hoopla, to see what we can learn. There's so much interest because there are so many layers. We want to peel back those layers and examine them like nobody else has done. Among the many reasons making a murderer took hold in popular culture is its sprawling nature. Like any well-known mystery, there are countless puzzle pieces we try and put together. There are so many aspects that can be viewed one way or seen as something else. So much in the Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey cases remains up for dispute all these years later. There's the key in Avery's bedroom. Was it a clue left behind by a killer or a planted piece of evidence? There's the license plate call-in by Sheriff Sergeant Andy Colburn. Was he just refreshing his memory or was he staring at Teresa Hallbach's RAV4? There's the blood found inside the vehicle, left behind by a clumsy killer or planted by corrupt cops. There's just so, so much. If there's one thing that most people can agree on, though, it's the Brendan Dassey confession. Even if you're not screaming about its legitimacy, you're at least likely to admit it's, shall we say, questionable. As far as making a murderer is concerned, the interrogation of Dassey is among the most memorable scenes. We all recall those agonizing videos from 2006 of the 16-year-old kid mumbling and nodding his way through hours of questioning. You're probably picturing Dassey right now, sitting on that couch in his zip-off jeans. There are so many questions that are raised from watching that scene. One of them is fundamental for those who think the confession was coerced. That's what we want to talk about today. Why would a person confess to a crime they did not commit? Jim Trainum is a retired Washington, D.C. homicide detective. He literally wrote the book on false confessions. In 2016, he published How the Police Generate False Confessions, an inside look at the interrogation room. He goes around the country presenting on the topic and is an advocate for improving how police handle interrogations. If his name sounds familiar, it might be because he shows up in the first season of the Serial podcast. He gives his opinion on a confession and on the case as a whole. What got Trainum to this point was a case more than 20 years ago. He didn't want to get too specific with the details of that crime, but it was a murder investigation. Basically, back in 1994, I was a relatively new homicide detective, and this was a fairly high-profile case. Uh, we identified our suspect based on some anonymous tips, and we confirmed it uh, through what we through handwriting analysis. We had uh, credit card slips that had been signed by the suspect. 
and we had a handwriting expert look at them and tell us that our suspect, uh, the person who we, who we thought you know committed the crime, was the signer of the credit card slips. So based on that information, we arrested the person uh, for a credit card fraud, and we interrogated you know the person for several hours, during which time I used. Um, Basically, used my training. I used interrogation tactics that were uh, taught to us and that would uh, pass muster in any court in the country. Uh, and by doing that, I was able to convince her that it was in her best interest to uh, confess to a crime that it turned out later that she didn't commit. Uh, not only did she confess, but she gave us all of these details about the crime that, you know, she shouldn't have known unless she was there. So... Um, fortunately, during our follow-up investigation, we stumbled across her alibi, which turned out to be unshakable. So we went back and had to look at the original foundation of our case against her, which was primarily the handwriting, and it turned out that our handwriting expert really wasn't all that, and uh, he was discredited by experts with the FBI and the Secret Service. So what I wanted to find out was, you know, what did I do? Like I said, that convinced this woman that it was a good idea to confess to a crime that she didn't commit. And how was it that she was able to give me all this information? And so I reviewed you know, the videotapes. I found out basically what happened. And then I turned that into training classes for law enforcement and attorneys and, and others on how to avoid the mistakes that not only was I was making, but are being made every single day in interrogation rooms across the country. So in this instance, back in 94, Trainum was lucky he and his colleagues stumbled across this woman's airtight alibi, or she probably would have been convicted based on a false confession. You know, basically what we did was we painted her into a corner where um, she thought that in order to get help from us, in order to escape whatever inevitable consequences she believed she was facing, that she needed to tell us a story. Mm-hmm. And she got the story from us. Well, basically what happened was during our conversations with her, we gave her bits and pieces over the course of several hours. So his anecdote sheds a little light on what becomes a fundamental question. Why would somebody confess to a crime they didn't commit? Why would you confess to a crime that you did do? You know, why would that be of some sort of benefit to you? We tell you up front, we're supposed to, that you have the right to remain silent. Anything that you say can be used against you. So why in God's name do you think it's to your advantage to tell me, yeah, I shot the guy three times? What is it about what we do in that interrogation room that creates that temporary perception that telling me that is going to be good for you? And that's the key right there. Because and anybody is, could potentially falsely confess to a crime under the right circumstances. If I'm telling you that we got... 15 witnesses that saw you do this, if I'm telling you that there is no way that the judge is going to believe your story, that your conviction and serving jail time is 
it's going to happen. No way around it. The only way that you can avoid it is by coming clean now, showing that you have remorse, showing that uh, you want to take personal responsibility. That's the only way you're going to get out of it. That could potentially make somebody feel, oh, my God, you know, they got me. The only thing I can do is kind of tell him, and he's going to help me if I tell him what he wants to hear. Trainum talked a lot about how interrogations are handled in the U.S. versus how they're done elsewhere. The most popular tactic used by American police detectives is called the Reed Technique. It's a way of questioning somebody that Trainum more generally refers to as an accusatory interrogation approach. There's a lot of different schools out there that teach this approach. However, they're all founded on the Reed Principle. Reed is the oldest interrogation school out there. It's the largest. It's trained the most people. Uh, it was cited in the Miranda uh, a court decision that because the, the Supreme Court wanted to know what went on inside the interrogation rooms back in the, I think it was the, the 60s or whatnot. I forgot what year that came out. So since they didn't have videotapes back, in, back then, they read the Reed textbook, and they went, oh, my God, this is pretty coercive stuff. We better have, you know, give them some warnings. So when it comes to what the industry standard is for accusatory interrogation tactics, Reed is pretty much the standard. Mm-hmm. So that's what they follow. Okay. The, thing with, the thing about Reed, though, is it's so funny because they insist that if you use their interrogation tactics properly, you will never get a false confession, which it's totally bogus because one of their founders got one back in the 50s, and I'm sure that he used their you know, tactics properly. Um, but they also say that one of the reasons that you would never get a false confession is you don't interrogate innocent people, <laughs> you know, which is kind of, okay, well, um, the other issue is that, you know, Reed for years has focused in on the admissibility of interrogation tactics. They really haven't focused in on reliability until recently. And that's because of all the DNA exonerations. But Reed also says there's a lot of things that you shouldn't do. And they, you know, they say that you should not threaten either real or implied threats of inevitable consequences or offer real or implied promises of leniency. And though Reed says that you can lie about the evidence, you shouldn't do that in conjunction with these other two tactics. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that you see that done all the time in interrogations. And it's because though Reed has it in their textbooks and on their website, they don't teach it in their class. So the student goes in, they get a basic overview of the read you know, process, they watch a bunch of videos, they're never tested. They're, they're never, they're, the superficiency in, this, in the uh, tactic is never tested. And um, I kind of equate it with a doctor being taught a medical procedure, but not being tested on how to do it not being taught the side effects, how to recognize them, and how to correct them if they occur. There's a problem with the read technique, or any other accusatory approach for that matter. Things can get off track really early, even before a suspect is in the interrogation room. The other thing is that, you know, really the first step 
and getting a false confession is not the interrogation technique itself. The first step is identifying an innocent person as a suspect. And, you know, that happens all the time. I mean, that's part of the investigative process because investigations are messy things. We uh, have to make decisions based on incomplete information. Sometimes it's inaccurate. We find out more information as the case goes on. And so frequently we will identify initially the wrong person. However, in most cases it corrects itself as the investigation progresses. However, when you kind of identify the wrong person based on a hunch, based on their demeanor, uh, you know, that's when you start getting into problems. And what the interrogation schools, the Reed School and other interrogation schools teach is a process that actually compounds that problem. What they teach is that this stuff called behavioral analysis. They say that before you interrogate, what you should do is interview the person. And during that interview, you're supposed to use this behavioral analysis stuff where you watch their body language and you watch the way they answer your questions. In fact, there's a series of questions that you're supposed to ask the person and based on their answers and these other observations, Reed says that you can determine whether or not they're being deceptive, whether or not they're guilty or innocent, thereby being a subject for interrogation with over 80% accuracy. You can become a human lie detector, and we believe that. In fact, you see it on TV all the time. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that the real scientific studies out there, the you know, valid ones, prove that this is total pseudoscience. It doesn't work. The best you can do is maybe 50-50 by tossing a coin. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're going into these um, situations where we think somebody's guilty to begin with. Tunnel vision kicks in. We start looking for confirmation of our belief. We get it because we find it in this behavioral analysis stuff. And then we go into interrogation mode. So read, uh, the read-style interrogation actually promotes tunnel vision and confirmation bias in an investigation, which is one of the biggest causes of wrongful convictions. Uh, just about every single wrongful conviction case that you have, you'll find tunnel vision plays a huge role. And we're being taught techniques that actually encourage it. If you believe Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey were wrongfully convicted, you probably just had all kinds of mental alarms going off. Tunnel vision on the part of the investigators is something Avery and Dassey supporters have pointed to. There is some good news here, albeit big picture good news. Trainum said slowly around the country there have been groups shifting away from the accusatory approaches of interrogation. People have begun to recognize that uh, the Reed-style interrogation tactics are problematic. They're very effective in that they can get guilty people to confess. They're also very effective in getting innocent people to confess. And so there's been a move away from it. Uh, the second largest interrogation school in the U.S., Whitlander, has announced that they will no longer teach the Reed technique because of the problems associated with it. And the... Uh, <laughs> and there's a federal government agency, it's called the 
high-value detainee interrogation group, or HIG, um, those are the people who interrogate terrorists and folks along that line. Uh, they have a research component that is trying to find the best way to get information from not only terrorists but also criminals uh, of your ordinary nature uh, that is much more scientific-based. When it comes to this behavioral analysis stuff, when it comes to all of this, these interrogation techniques, there, there's no science in them whatsoever. Um, but there are techniques out there that are based on science that are much more reliable in getting good information and don't have all the same problems that Reed has. And slowly, very slowly, some law enforcement agencies in the U.S. are beginning to adopt those practices. And those practices really originated in the uh, U.K. back in the 70s. Um, what happened back then was the same thing that is going on in the last couple of decades here, was that there were several high-profile wrongful convictions that the, were the result of false confessions. So over there, they're very different. They have one agency that oversees all of law enforcement. They don't have like 18,000 different agencies like we do. And so what they did was they said, okay, we're going to study how you guys conducted how you guys do interrogations. So they made them audio tape all of their interrogations. And then they listened to them. And they said, oh my God, this is not good. It sounds like American law enforcement just needed to have a moment like Trainum had back in 94, some kind of wake-up call. Because they were using the Reed-style tactics over there. So they outlawed all of those things. Everything that Reed teaches it would be considered a human rights violation in the UK and also several other countries that have adopted this practice. What they've done is they've come up with a uh, process which they call investigative interviewing. It's also known as PEACE, as an acronym for the different steps. But basically the goal is you're going in there not to get a confession. You're going in there to get information. I don't know about you, but from this outsider's perspective, that seems like it makes a ton of sense. You do so in a way that one, makes the person want to share the information to you, uh, and two, you pretty much um, interview them in a very intelligent way in which if they are guilty, then you kind of trap them in their own lies. And the result is when you get a confession, it's a good confession. It's not contaminated. Um, it's uh, much more accurate information, and you don't have all the problems associated uh, with Reed that may get the confession thrown out. Second, if you don't get a confession, what you have is a ton of good information that you can now go out and investigate and blow it out of the water if it's a lie. So something else in the U.K. is they have a lot of safeguards in place for the most vulnerable uh, people who or most prone to false confessing, uh, people such as juveniles or people with intellectual uh, disabilities or other handicaps. Alarm bells going off again? I'm not sure if Trainum was purposely bringing the conversation back to the Dassey debate or if it just kind of worked out that way. After circling it for some time, I had to ask how much attention he'd paid to the cases at the heart of making a murderer, and more specifically about Brendan Dassey's confession. I was worried he wouldn't want to get into it too much, but he had no problem going there. 
I have seen Making a Murderer, and I've seen the, uh, the Brendan Dassey tapes, and I've actually used them in some of my training classes with law enforcement. And, um, you know, where you might look at that from one viewpoint and say that, you know, they really weren't threatening him. They really weren't yelling and screaming that you would think. But, one, he is obviously has a disability. He's a juvenile with a disability, so he's much more susceptible. And then, two, as you're watching it, um, it is a great example of these detectives think that they're doing a good job. They're not being malicious. And it's funny because when I showed it in one class, all the detectives who were watching it were laughing and making snide remarks about their their interrogation uh, methods and all and the level of contamination. But I had to point out to them, wait a minute, now wait, I'm not showing this to make fun of these guys because anyone here could fall into this trap. Because these detectives, like I said, they're not being malicious. They think they're doing a good job. They just don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to do it right. And they really believe that he's guilty. And so they don't see anything wrong with telling him, this is what we want you to say. We call him, we need you to say that because you got shot in the head. And so they come out and tell him that. You know, once you, t- <laughs> you know, once you tell somebody something like that, it's coming from the detective. It's not coming from the suspect. In fact, when I look at videotapes, what I do is I break them down almost line for line. And I'm looking for contamination. And when you do that, a lot of times it jumps out at you who's telling the story. It's not the suspect who's telling the story. It's the detective. The suspect is only adopting it. And then later on, the detective says, well, what you told me was true, right? Yeah. Okay, now it's yours. What he says there at the end takes me back to that scene in Making a Murderer where the detectives are feeding him the lines, and they, they're asking, what did you do to her head? Because they're fishing. They're trying to get the answer that she was shot in the head. And because he doesn't know the answer, he says cut her hair and then they just keep trying well and eventually they break and say who shot her in the head and then he has an answer yeah it's the same way he dealt with questions from the teacher in school just guessing until he the authority figure told him yeah you have the right answer there so you know we're going to stop answering questions or asking you questions what stood out to me was the the statement that the detectives believe he's guilty so they don't see anything wrong with telling them, this is what we want you to say. Uh, There's still a segment of the American public that believes that if you're dealing with a guilty person, it's okay to take shortcuts like that. It's okay to stomp on on, on people's rights like that, and they're not looking as as dassy and innocent in the sense that he lacks any guile. They're simply saying, okay, we believe this kid did it, Therefore, it's okay to trick him into telling you what you believe happened. Tram doesn't weigh in on whether or not he thinks Dassey is innocent or guilty. He just gets into the fact that law enforcement led him down a path and he unknowingly followed, answering the questions how he thought he should answer them. It's basically impossible to tell whether or not he's telling the truth or just saying what they want to hear. What it comes down to is people confess because they're backed into a corner and then they're led to believe that it's the only way out. 
That's true for guilty people, sure, but it also can be true for innocent people because people like Jim Traynham are out there trying to fix the problem and says it's happening just at a glacial pace. So Doug, if sometime in your life you do get arrested for something you didn't do, I hope it's not for a long, long time. Later this season on Making a Mania, we'll hear from former Avery defense lawyer Dean Strang about what he thinks can be done to improve the criminal justice system. Learn more about this podcast, about making a murderer, or about the cases of Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey at postcrescent.com, where our journalists have been writing about these topics for years. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Making a Mania is written and produced by Shane Nyman and Doug Schneider. William Glasheen and Jim Rosendick recorded and edited the podcast. Audio comes from the USA Today Network Wisconsin Archive. <laughs>